Hello everyone and welcome back to the CEO Journals podcast. I'm your host Ethan Bridge and for those of you that are new here I just want to thank you all for tuning in to today's episode. One of the biggest complaints of professionals is that business is like a hamster wheel and you are the hamster. You're only making money when you're working, prospecting, meeting with potential clients or delivering on your work product. You are simultaneously the CEO, CFO and factory line worker. On today's episode of the podcast, I had the pleasure of speaking to Steve Gordon. In 1999, at just the age of 28, Steve became the CEO of his first business. It was Baptism by Fire. He knew nothing about marketing or selling services. The company got all of their business by word of mouth. But they never knew where the next client was coming from or when he or she would arrive. Steve spent far too many nights staring at the ceiling at 2am, worried that the next client might not come when it's needed. So he started studying sales and marketing. And he and his team grew that firm to a multi seven figure professional practice. Now Steve has invested nearly two decades studying, implementing, testing and proving the strategies that work to sell professional services. Since 2010, he's been sharing what he's learnt with growth-minded professionals who are tired of trying this and trying that and finally want some clarity and just want to have a clear plan of action to get clients that works. I can't wait for you all to hear what Steve has to say, so without any further ado, let's dive straight into today's episode. Enjoy. Hello everyone and welcome back to the CEO Journals podcast. I cannot wait for you to listen to this episode because on today's show, I have the pleasure of speaking to Steve Gordon. Steve, how are you doing today? Fantastic, Ethan. Thanks for having me. No, it's my pleasure. I can't wait to dive in to what you have to say. So for the listeners who don't know who you are, do you mind just giving us a quick 60 second introduction of who you are and what you do, please? Well, so um, I started my career in uh, actually in engineering, believe it or not. Um, And at the age of 28, about four years after I got out of school, I was asked to take over as the CEO for the consulting firm that I worked with. And uh, it was a fantastic opportunity. I, and I wasn't anywhere near prepared for it at the time. Um, but I had, a, had the good fortune to uh, have a great mentor and uh, was able to work with our team and grow that firm over about the next 10 years. And then uh, decided I wanted to, to really uh, pursue the thing that I love the most in that business, which was the sales and marketing part. And so I uh, started working with other, uh, other experts, other professionals, uh, people who are really smart and, and uh, very good at what they do, but they probably didn't get into business to become professional marketers and salespeople. And, um, and so that's who we're uh, working to be a hero to now and and we help them uh, develop marketing systems to uh, you know to highlight their expertise without them having to to really become professional marketers awesome and i can't wait to dive into that more and that opportunity you got about being asked to be the ceo of your company just four years in after starting is sounds like an incredible opportunity so i want to ask you about that in a minute but first i like to start all my episodes by throwing it back with my guest and talking to them about their time at school. So let's focus on a 14-year-old version of yourself. How did you find school? Was it, did you find it easy? Did you breeze by and you were a straight-A student? Were you a class clown? Or did you just coast and simply do what you needed to do and get the grade? Yeah, I have to be careful in case my kids listen to this because I, <laughs> I can't reveal too much. Um, no, I was not a straight-A student. I, I did well. Um, but, um, I could get by without doing a whole lot of work. Uh, I had figured out how to game the system. In fact, uh, it was when I was 14, I was taking chemistry for the very first time and I had, uh, a particular aptitude for chemistry for whatever reason and was able to get A's on all of the tests without doing any of the work in between. And I had to actually sell my teacher on the idea that he should not only pass me, 
but also give me an A because I knew all the material. Um, didn't matter that I didn't do, need to do that. I didn't do the the homework or anything like that. That uh, you know I'd already proven myself. And he bought part of that. He gave me a B and he passed me. But uh, I was pretty fortunate. So that that's what school age uh, looked like for me. So did you also go to university or college? I'm not quite, I still am quite sure of the route outside of the higher education in America. So how was that? Did you know that you were going to come out of university working for a corporate or did you always have that sort of sixth sense knowing that you're going to end up working for yourself? I, I always, I think knew that I would end up working you know, in, in a smaller company and eventually for myself. Um, my dad uh, had his own professional practice, uh, you know, so I kind of grew up in that environment. And, uh, and I, honestly, I'm, I'm pretty much unemployable. Um, I, I, don't, I don't like taking, uh, taking anyone else's direction unless I absolutely have to. So, um, yeah, so I, I always had that sense. And, and the first company that I went to work for was a smaller company where I could have a pretty big impact um, right out of the gate. And uh, had I not done that, I never would have had the opportunity to run that company. And that was, that was just a tremendous experience. So you were only four years in when you were asked to be the CEO? Yes. Did you feel as if you were ready at that point? <laughs> no, no, I wasn't close to ready. Um, I didn't know what I was getting into, but, um, you know, but the, the founder of the company who, who asked me to take over, um, he was a great mentor and, uh, and really helped me grow into that role. And so, um, I was really, really fortunate. For sure. Do you still have mentors now then, even though you do run your own business? Is there still oh, yeah. you to help guide you? Of course. Way? Of course. I, I think if... I mean, at every point in life, I think you have mentors and, and uh, trusted peers that, that guide you. Um, and so, yeah, if you don't have that, you need, to, you need to go find that support system. For sure. So being the CEO, that's what most people aspire to be. They think they'll get to that point and that's great. They've made it. But you didn't. You got to the CEO and thought, right now I want to work for myself. That must have been quite a scary leap for you, knowing you were leaving a very cushy job with a very solid salary to then potentially have nothing. So how scary was that leap between working from a solid salary, knowing that you were going to get paid every month, to the entrepreneurial journey that you're on now? Well, it, um, it, it wasn't... Uh, it wasn't as much of a, I don't know. It was just different. Um, the, at the time I made that leap, it was 2009 here in the U S. Um, that first business was largely based on, um, working for land developers who were building real estate related projects. And, um, I don't know how it was in, in Europe at that point, but, um, you know, the, the real estate market essentially stopped functioning for about a year and a half, two years. Uh, 90% of our revenue went away because clients either went out of business or they, they just shut down. They ceased operations for a period of time um, because there was no market. There weren't any buyers for the, the uh, homes and the buildings that they were building. And we were serving that market. And so it really was, um, you know, it was an opportunity to, to look around at what was happening in the market and realize the market we were in wasn't going to go forward very successfully. And, and it was an opportunity to pivot and, and move out of that. Um, you know, and I, so for me, it wasn't so much I was leaving this crazy, cushy job. I mean, it was, and, and there was a paycheck. Um, but, the, you know, the decision that uh, my partners and I made was to not dump you know, all of the money that, that had been made into this giant hole that was about to get created. Um, and so we ended up going different directions from there, each of us. And um, it is very scary to, to jump from a place where you're getting a paycheck um, out into, um, you know, 
starting something new where, um, quite frankly, at first, you know, there, there probably isn't a paycheck for you. So you've got to be able to make that transition. And how quick was it then before you did start building up that revenue when you could actually start taking a paycheck for yourself again? Well, I mean, you, you sort of, uh, you know, you, you pay yourself as you need to be paid to pay the bills um, early on in a business. I think anybody that starts uh, does that, that bit of a juggle. Um, it was probably a good four or five months before it was at a point where there was enough sustainable, repeatable revenue. Um, and, you know, probably year, year and a half before I had replaced my salary completely. For sure. So the business that you are actually running now, it's, it uses the agency model. And so why are you such a fan of doing business this way? And why would you recommend it for any aspiring entrepreneurs out there that don't really know what they want to do yet? Well, so we went that direction a few years ago. Prior to that, we had been doing uh, consulting and some coaching. And, you know, we were essentially in the advice giving business. And what we found was that the, the really great clients that we attracted struggled with implementing the strategies that we were giving them because they didn't have the skills, they didn't have the team, they didn't have the systems to be able to do it. And, um, and we really weren't fully serving them by just giving them the advice, the strategies. They really needed help making those things real in, in their own businesses. And we had an opportunity to do that and, and to really help them. And, uh, and so we went that route. And, and part of that was really looking back at that first business. Um, and, you know, we were in that business, we were in, you know, it wasn't a, a marketing agency, but we were essentially in the done for you business. And um, the thing about being in a business like that is, it uh, it creates some great relationships with clients, and it uh, it often will create a bit of a dependency with clients. Where and, and not in a negative way, but in a way where you're creating a lot of value for them, um, you're helping facilitate an important function within their business, and they become dependent on that in in a really positive way that that creates you know um, you know great value and great growth for them. So they tend to stick around for a long time, and um, and so as I reflected back on that first business, I mean, we had clients that had been with us for 20, 25 years. And, uh, and it's just incredibly profitable when you can create a business that has that kind of retention. And so that was really why we went this route. Now, is it the right thing for everyone? No. I mean, I, because I'd had that experience, um, I knew that we could build systems and that we could you know, train people to operate those systems and create results for our clients. Um, had I not had that background, I might not, you know, have gone this, this direction. For sure. So that prior experience really did actually set you up to go forward in what you were doing. So being a marketing agency in the agency space, marketing a service is very different to marketing a physical product in the sense that the common sales tactics are actually working against you rather than for you because you can't really ex you can't exactly sell a prospect a service and then expect them to turn around and trust you as their advisor so as an agency how do you go about marketing your services well you i think you have to take a very long view of it um, you do have to build trust. You have to build authority to at least to make selling easy. Now you certainly can, um, you can shortcut the process, but it becomes difficult because you've got to be the trusted advisor for that client. You know, if they don't implement any of your strategies, then you haven't actually delivered any value. And, and that, you know, having that client take action really depends more on, how they view you as an expert, as an, and as an authority and how they trust you than it does anything else. And so, you know, you can't destroy all of that trust by taking them through a rushed and largely selfish or one-way sales process. Um, you know, and so when you begin to think long-term with your marketing and, and look at it as, you know, I, I need to generate leads every day. 
And, you know, let's say today I'm going to generate 10 leads. Well, of those 10 leads, maybe one or two are going to move forward in the next 30, 60, 90 days. And the remainder then are, you know, hopefully going to move forward at some point in the future. In fact, there's been um, studies done that will show that show that about half will, you know, half of all prospects. So of those 10, let's say we generate today, five of them will buy something similar to what we do within the next couple of years. Right. And a, and a couple of them will do it really quickly in the next maybe three months. Well, I want to capture at least a few of those five that are going to make a decision in the next few years. So I've got to build all of my marketing out to stay in front of them for that amount of time. And I've got to do it in a way that I can actually execute on. That's not so overwhelming. That doesn't take so much effort that, you know, that I'm not able to keep up with it. And we see that a lot. We see a lot of businesses generate leads and then the, they don't have a real solid follow-up process. That's easy for the business to operate, you know, easy for the, the owner of the business to, to uh, execute. And so they generate leads and they make all that investment and then it all gets wasted, you know, because they're not staying in touch with, with these valuable assets that they've created, these leads. For sure. And so when you first started out then, so because a lot of the people that listen to this are just starting out, what was your favorite method of outreach? Was it cold email, cold call? What were your methods to actually onboarding clients initially so the thing that that we did and that um and that i recommend is to start with your network start Mm -hmm. with referrals you know that's the easiest path forward you've got people that already trust you that likely already value you as a person uh, and and think highly of you and so when you come and say look i've started this business. This is the value that, that we create for people. Um, you know, ideally you've gone out and you've created that value for a few of them, maybe without getting paid, just to get some case studies together. But, um, then you want to use your network and, and start there. I, I see, I see people trying cold email and, and cold calling and all of that kind of stuff early on. But the, the challenge is you don't know what to say in any of those messages yet. And you need to have a lot of interaction, one-on-one interaction with potential clients because those conversations that you have will allow you to tweak the message and adjust on the fly. And as you do that, you're going to get to the point where you really clearly understand what words you need to say to get somebody interested in what you're offering. And then you can take that and you can put it into advertising or your cold outreach or whatever you want to do. But you've got to get to that point. And the faster you get there, the quicker you'll find success. For sure. And especially when you get further down the line and you've actually got a solid base of clients, those referrals are essentially free business. You're paying nothing in marketing or ad spend to onboard these clients. It's simply coming through word of mouth of your current clients. So if you can build a good enough reputation, referrals are brilliant. And as you say, it's not something people utilize enough initially because they don't realize that people out there do already trust them. They've just got, you've got to ask. You've already built a relationship with this person. So just ask. It's what's the worst they're going to say is no. And that's going to happen a hell of a lot if you cold call or cold email anyway. So why not do it with someone you know and trust and get it from them in the first place? Absolutely. It's so much easier. For sure. So. Another thing I want to talk about, and I know you're quite hot on this, is escaping commoditization and price competition. Because service-based businesses are continuously squeezed by competition and commoditization. So how can you instill this belief in your clients so they do pay you these higher retainers? For example, so say two companies are batting out on a proposal and then someone just completely slashes their prices to try and win the business. You obviously don't want to follow on that price slash because you know your worth. So how do you instill your belief in your clients that you are worth what they are paying? Well, the, the first thing to do is never be in a situation where you're being compared like that. Um, if, if you're in that position, you've already lost. And so the, 
the thing that you want to do is look for ways to rig the game in your favor. And, you know, and, and you don't have, you know, that sort of, it's not like you've, you're Apple and you've got the innovation of the iPhone to, to stand on stage, you know, as Steve Jobs did and pace back and forth and, and wow people with this thing. You're, you know, if you're um, an accountant or an attorney or, you know, in, in any of the other service businesses, there's a good chance that what you do is almost identical to what everyone else in your industry does. But chances are most people aren't talking about how they go about it. And the thing that I've, uh, that I've found, Ethan, is that every service business owner started the business because they felt like they had this right way of doing things. We call it with our clients, we call that your worldview. And it, you know, it sounds sort of like this when, you know, somebody asks you, well, how do you, how do you do what you do? You say, well, I do X, Y, and Z, and here's why I do that. And it's the best way to do it. It's better than what the guys down the street do who are charging half price. And here's why it's better. And you have that opinion, right? But most of us keep that opinion locked up. We don't share it with anybody. We don't make a good case for, for why it's so. We just get aggravated that our potential client didn't see the same value that, that we saw in it, but we didn't explain it to them. So the best thing you can do is take that worldview and package it up and put it in a form where it, it kind of has inherent authority with it and, um, and then use that and distribute it. And so there are a few ways you can do that. The, the best way to do that is to put it into the form of a short book. And we've done books that, I mean, it's generous calling them a book. One of them was 12 typed pages in micro, 12, like eight and a half by 11 inch, you know, letter size pages here in the U.S. Um, I think by the time we formatted it into a book, which was you know, pa smaller page size, it was about 25 pages. That's really being generous calling that a book. But it got that, that professional's worldview on the paper and in a form where he could now go to his clients and say, you know, uh, Ethan, I'm on a mission to totally transform the way, you know, in his case, he was in financial service, transform the way that the doctors, you know, approach their financial planning and they run into all these certain issues. And, uh, and, and I know the answer to all of those issues. And I've actually written in this book, um, all of the things that they need to know about these, these various issues so that they can make a decision. And so he could go to his clients and say, do you know anybody that would benefit from receiving a copy of the book? I'd like to give it to him as a gift from you. And he went from, you know, by packaging up that worldview, which he already had, he would share it with you if you sat across the table from him. But instead of forcing you to sit across the table to hear it, he put it into a book. He could go to his clients, give them an easy way to share it. He went from getting about three referrals in the 12 months prior to doing this to the very first time he shared that with a client, the client gave him 11 referrals. That client had never referred before in the 10 years they'd worked together. And um, he went on to get about 98 referrals in the first month of, of using that process with his wow. clients and uh, totally transformed the business. So um, you have this advantage hidden inside your business, this way that you do things. And and it's usually an opinionated way that you do things. Bring that out in front of people and, um, and share it with them. And some of them are going to be attracted by that. They're going to go, wow, this, you know, hey, Ethan's got this process and he's, look, he's thought it through. And this part over here, this is, you know, exactly the problem that I'm facing. Well, he must be my guy. And you want to create that kind of experience in your future clients. So that's the best way to get out of price competition is, is to take that, that opinionated worldview and use it to differentiate yourself. Sure. And it's so funny you say that as well, because I've spoken to a, a couple of, I've spoken to quite a few authors and one of the earlier episodes was, he was with a ghostwriter and he said that he's written books for people that simply just take them along to not so much for referrals, but they take them into proposals and it, is literally just a book about what they do or how their journey so far to where they've got or how they do what they do. And a book perceives you to be an expert because people think it's really difficult to write a book when in reality, you and I can go out, write a book, get it self-published and boom, it's done. 
But the fact that that person has a book and they're being lined up against five or six other candidates makes them the expert because none of these other people have books. So as soon as the client sees that they have a book, they're like, this guy must know what he's talking about if he's written a book on it. So the fact that you then relate it back to the book, it's, I just find it super interesting because that's a couple of times that sort of similar tactics have come full circle. Well, and, and the best way to then use that book, once you've, you've taken, taken that thing that makes you different and packaged it like that, you can take that book. The best way to use it is to use it as the thing that generates each lead for you. So you're not sharing it with a proposal at the end of the process. You're actually starting your relationship where the very first interaction that a potential client has with you is that they, they have actually chosen to get your book because it addresses a problem that they have. And when you can do that, you eliminate all the competition. Yeah. You're taking it that one step further that just initiates the, the first conversation, which again, that's a great, that's a great lesson I've learned from this episode. I'm going to definitely take that away. Um, for a service-based business then, um, what have you found the biggest barriers to scale? Because I think a lot of people have set expectations on what they can expect to receive as a monthly retainer. For example, they may expect uh, just a $2,000 or $3,000 retainer, but there are those six, seven-figure monthly retainers out there. So as an agency, how do you bridge the gap between those smaller monthly retainers and those that can genuinely cement you as a extremely large agency well the the easy answer is um is in one word who Mm. so the the type of client that will pay you a few thousand pounds or a few thousand dollars a month is very different than the type of client that will pay you tens of thousands of pounds or dollars in a month and uh, you know a lot of times what we'll see is someone who really wants to get those larger retainers, but they're targeting potential clients that either cannot pay it or won't pay it for, you know, maybe they, they just don't have the right mindset to, to want to invest at that level. Um, the, the simplest, fastest way to take a jump up in, in the level of, of revenue that you have, like, you know, like that is to, to really change who you're trying to attract as clients. And, um, and then build everything around the type of client that you want. For sure. And have you found that the smaller retainer clients are almost more, much harder work than those that pay larger, larger retainers? Not all the time. Um, it depends on how you do it. So, I mean, we, in our own agency, I mean, we have, we're on the smaller end of, of the retainer, um, scale. And, um, we have had clients that, you know, have, have paid us, you know, 10, 15, 20, $30,000 a month for, you know, an extended period of time. And for me, I find those to be much more difficult to deal with because they want a lot of personal attention and handholding because they're spending a lot of money. Um, if you're going to work with clients on the, the lower end of the scale, then it's got to be a more productized delivery mechanism, you know? And so for our service where we produce podcasts for our clients, um, I, you know, I'm involved early on in the, you know, the strategy piece of it, but the mechanics of it all, all of that's delivered through our team. And, um, and so I I actually find them a a joy to work with um, simply because, I don't have somebody who's spent an awful lot of money and who believes that they're entitled to, you know, have every moment of my time calling me, you know, on the weekends or in the evenings or whatever. For sure. And I know you touched on podcasting there and you have got your own, um, which is brilliant. I've listened to it multiple times. Um, Thank you. How has having a podcast actually impacted your business? Has it, have you sort of used it as a way to onboard clients or is it just given you more exposure as such? Podcast has been transformational. So um, our current podcast is called the Unstoppable CEO Podcast, and um, and and it's been fantastic. But it's actually my second podcast. My first was um, 
all the way back in 2012, back before podcasting became kind of all the rage. And I ran it for a year. And I, I view podcasting as a really great tool for building relationships, one-on-one relationships. So we get to have this conversation, you know, we're on, on Zoom right now so we can see each other and um, we get to chat a little bit beforehand. We'll probably get to chat a little bit at the end and we'll get to know each other. And, um, and so from the standpoint of building relationships, it's really, really powerful. You can build relationships with people that you would not be able to get on the phone and have a conversation with, but for the fact that, that you have a podcast. And so uh, back in 2012, I was going around and interviewing all these experts all over the world um, in small business and, and marketing. And it was great. And we ended up getting, you know, a lot of, you know, client growth out of that. I got busy. I didn't have a team at the time to produce the podcast. So I was trying to do it all myself, which is a huge mistake. And, uh, and it died because I couldn't, I just couldn't do it anymore. I didn't have the bandwidth. Well, the relationships that I built though, they were golden. And, uh, two years later in 2014, I wrote my first book. Um, and, uh, I went back to the, the people that I had interviewed and, and 15 out of the 50 that I interviewed agreed to help me promote the book. And those 15 people uh, were responsible for helping me get the book in the hands of a little over 5,200 people in the first week that we launched the book. So it was a huge, yeah. beyond my wildest dream success for that book. Um, our entire database at the time was right around 1,000 people. So we, you know, we, 5x our database in a week because of those relationships that I built through the podcast. So it took me a little while to, to go back and, and um, create another podcast. I started uh, the current one in 2017. Um, and I, I, I held off for a long time because I wanted to have a team in place. I didn't want it to die again. And, uh, you know, and so we use the podcast now to build relationships like that. And then um, have conversations with people uh, who are guests on the show. Some of them have become our clients and some of them have become really great um, strategic partners where we cross promote one another, uh, whether that's through a webinar or whether they share one of my books um, or we share, you know, a webinar. Like I have a webinar going on tomorrow with, um, with a, a buddy who we, you know, we created that relationship um, through actually he was one of the guests on that first podcast and I was a guest on his podcast back then. And he's since been a guest on the unstoppable CEO. So it's carried through all these years and, and uh, I'm hosting a webinar for him where we've invited everybody from our, our uh, world to you know attend that and, and, uh, and get to know him. So it just creates huge opportunities um, to network and, and to create uh, really great lead generation events. And that is something I can definitely agree with as well because it's just the biggest networking hack i've found like even even when i first started i was had no personal brand whatsoever and i was reaching out to these individuals with no right whatsoever to be talking to a seven-figure entrepreneur about who they are and what they do yet they agreed because i had this platform i may not have any listeners at the time but I suppose in their head is the fact that, as you say, building a relationship. And if it does, if this person's podcast does take off eventually, then brilliant. They're the first guest because people most often go back to the first episode and listen to all the way through. And if they're the first, then they're going to get quite a lot of exposure. So, and I extremely appreciate those that did give me the chance extremely early on in the day. It's obviously much easier now that now that I've got had more people on the show to get more guests, but I've, you'll be episode number three. 35 like and i only started this six months ago and it's been crazy but it's been crazy as you say i've built some incredible relationships just by speaking to someone from an app for an hour talking to them a bit after and then carrying on the conversation whether that be email uh, instagram linkedin it's been fascinating and i'm so glad that i did start when i did do you wish you had carried on your first podcast yeah. seeing yeah. the growth seeing the growth that podcasting has had since. Yeah. Well, uh, you, you, um, I know you like people share failures that probably huge failure on my part was not carry, figuring out a way to carry that forward. Um, you know, particularly with the amazing growth 
of of podcasting as a medium. I mean, it it's yeah. you know it's now really on an exponential growth uh, uh, exponential growth curve. And so, um, yeah, I wish I had kept that one going. And and you know, I would have had, gosh, we'd have been on probably episode, I don't know, what's it been, eight years, 400, 500. We'd be in that ballpark right now. Um, And so, yeah, it would have been a tremendous asset. But, you know, so this week um, I've got a new book coming out and which actually describes how we use podcasts and and lays out the whole strategy. And, um, you know, because I've interviewed all of these people, and I've maintained relationships with them over the last several years. Uh, I've got a list of 147 people that we're going to be, you know, asking and inviting to share the new book. So contrast that to, to what happened in 2014. I had 50 people in 15 said yes. And we got 5,000 new people in our world out of that. Well, I've got 150 and we'll probably add to that some. And, you know, if we get a third of those, that's 50 people, um, you know, that's, um, you know, we're, we're multiplying the numbers. And as you go forward with a podcast, particularly if you stay in touch, that's one of the things that I've noticed that a lot of, um, a lot of hosts of podcasts don't do a very good job of. They don't stay in touch over time. Um, anytime someone is, is on our podcast, uh, they then get a, a printed newsletter sent to them in the mail once a month. Um, I send them notes throughout the year. Um, you know, we want to stay in touch because those relationships are golden. For sure. And that's the thing. People will just jump on calls for an hour. They'll go, thank you. Goodbye. That'll be it. Podcast episode done. But I've made sure that even if it's just liking their Instagram post or reacting to a post on LinkedIn, it still holds that relationship. You still, you're still kept in their mind and you can still have that relationship and it's essential it is essential you don't want to have an hour conversation with someone and then that be it and as you say you've been able to build this over three years and still have a group of people that you're close with and will then go and promote a book you're doing now and that must be exciting thinking how many can how many sales can you get from these people that you've had on your podcast well and it's Certainly business will come from that, but more importantly, I mean, we're at a stage where, um, you know, the business is stable and it's growing. It's now about how many people can we impact? You know, how many people can we get this message in front of? And, um, you know, and then trusting that plenty of business will come from that and, um, and not really worrying so much about, you know, about that end of it. Um, yeah, we love to make money, but it, that'll work itself out if we're giving, you know, solid value out to the marketplace. Sure. And I know you touched on before that I love people sharing failures. So it's now time to share what you believe to have been your two biggest failures in your entrepreneurial journey so far. So failure number one, what was it? Ah, uh, failure number one. Uh, well, the, you know, the, the first business, you know, getting to the point where we decided that it, it wasn't going to be something that we carried forward. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's uh, never anything that, that a business owner wants to go through. It was the right decision at the time. Thankfully we were able to do it, um, you know, and, and, and exit, you know, in, in a somewhat positive way, but uh, you know, the market just went away and uh, a lot of that was out of our control and some of it was in our control. And uh you know, and, and being able to take responsibility for the parts that, that we were responsible for. Um, it's a tough thing. So yeah, it was a huge failure. I don't, I, I learned a tremendous amount in that process. I don't want to have to learn those lessons again. Would, was it difficult to accept that it was happening at the time or did you just fully know well that you needed to just let go? The market stopped functioning and, and that was, I think, the about it. It's one thing if, if it's 100% in your control and, uh, you know, and you've made the mistake. I actually find that easier, but when it's outside your control, you know, or at least a good portion of it, um, that, that's much more difficult to, to swallow, you yeah. know, because you've done, you know, in, in, in a lot of cases, we were doing many things right. 
and uh, and the market just ceased. So um, yeah, that it's frustrating, but you know you have to you have to own your outcomes, and yeah. part of that is owning what happens in failure, but the other part of that is owning what you do next. And so yeah. I could have just you know stayed and and kind of sat in all of that, but um, you know very quickly. I was moving forward and, and, uh, building a new business. And, and so I think that's the, anytime you approach a, you know, a setback in business like that, it's not only owning what's happened, but owning the next outcome. That's the really challenging thing to do. Sure. And I think that's a great outlook to have as well. And especially because without that failure, you wouldn't be where you are today now. Because look, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I mean, it was not a pleasant experience, um, but I wouldn't trade the lessons and the learning for the world. Um, it's the most valuable lessons that, that I've ever had. The confidence that comes from um, going through that and then rebounding quickly is tremendous. You begin to understand that, um, that this game of business isn't as complicated or as difficult as, as a lot of people want to make it out to be. And, um, and you begin to see that, that, uh, you know, by coming out of something like that and building, you know, another business successfully, that there's a process and a pattern to it. And if you can do it once, you can do it again. And I think that's, I think that's a great example of a failure you've learned a lot from. So is there anything else you can pick out as your second failure? Well, definitely not carrying forward on that podcast. I can't even imagine where we'd be if I'd continued that. But uh, uh, the second failure, um, being perfectly transparent, is is a personal one. And uh, I went through a divorce right around the time that that uh, we were running into that business challenge, and uh, uh, certainly a failure. And and again, you have to own your your next outcome. And and so um, I've had a great outcome. I've remarried, and uh, we've got four great kids and life is amazing, but, uh, I, I wouldn't wish divorce on my worst enemy. For sure. And that's a personal one as well. So thank you for sharing. Cause obviously you didn't have to share that. You've dropped some incredible value on today's episode, but that's not all I've got for you. I've got a final five, final five questions where it's just quick fire questions with quick fire answers. So first question, who is the first person that comes to mind when I say the word successful? Oh my gosh. Uh, a whole lot of people came to mind. Um, the first person that came to mind for whatever reason is Tony Robbins. And I don't know why, cause I don't really follow him very closely, but he popped into my mind. Um, gosh, I, there are so many successful people. I think Tony What's Robbins is one because his values and outlook on business are just what everyone should aspire to have. Like he's done extremely well. So mm-hmm. Good first person to come to mind. Um, what is the best investment you've ever made? So this can be money spent, time, energy, or just simply an Amazon purchase. <laughs> so two, um, two come to mind, uh, and, and I'm going to uh, take guest privilege and share two with you. Um, the first is um, every time I have invested in, um, in a coach or a peer group or a mastermind, and I've chosen it wisely. Um, I have gotten multiples of that investment out. It has always been the catalyst for tremendous both personal and business growth. Uh, the second is related to that is actually a tip that I got from uh, from the very first coach I ever worked with. Uh, he said the best advice he'd ever received in business was that as soon as you find yourself uh, getting a full schedule you need to cut your salary by 20% and hire an assistant. And uh, every time I've invested in an assistant or other help, it has always multiplied the return and helped multiply the business. And so, um, you know, I see a lot of business owners struggle trying to do everything. That's crazy. So invest in, in yourself, invest in getting yourself the help that you need so that you can focus on the areas where you truly create value. You'll make progress faster that way. For sure. And I think that's a, that's one a lot of people actually put off as well. Like investing in yourself is the best thing you can possibly do. Yet someone would rather go out and spend a thousand dollars on the new iPhone opposed to a mastermind course where they could set themselves up for life. 
And right. it just baffles me. It's how people choose to spend their money and they should be invested in themselves. It's the one thing that we are going to have forever. <laughs> so if you're not investing in yourself, then you're going to lose. So people need to make sure they are. Um, do you have a quote that you live by or think of often? Yes, absolutely. And uh, it's from uh, one of the great presidents of the United States who doesn't get a whole lot of credit, Calvin Coolidge. And it's actually on the about page of our website. Um, and it really describes um, for me what it means to be an unstoppable CEO. So that name doesn't describe me or the, the company as much as it describes the types of clients that we want to be a hero to the business owners who've just against all odds, they've built a business, they've created success, they've kept going even when things were difficult. And, um, and so the quote is this, nothing in this world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not, nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not, unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not, the world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. And again, that's Calvin Coolidge. He was the 30th president of the United States. What an incredible answer. I love that one. What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Build businesses faster and build more of them. Yeah. Why, why faster? When I was that age, I hadn't really comprehended building a business. Um, and at that age, you don't have all of the complications that come along as you, as you age. So when I started this business, um, you know, I, I had started it about a year and a half later. I, I remarried, have, you know, and then four kids, you know, to take care of. Life is complicated and expensive at that stage. And, you know, having the ability to invest all of your time early in a business and to be able to live, you know, and, and not have a lot of mouths to feed is actually an advantage when you're starting out. You get to experiment a little bit more. And so you're not as constrained. And, and uh, yeah, if I had it, if I could go back, I would, I'd be starting businesses in college, if sure. not earlier. And I, I'm 21 and I think I take for granted how little responsibility I actually have. Like I do have a full-time job and things like, and things like that, but I am only 21. I don't have a family. I need to make the most of only being responsible for myself while that's the case. <laughs> Final, I've got one last question for you. And I don't, I ask this question to all my guests on the podcast and it's, it's a bit of a morbid way to end the episode, but I find this question fascinating. because I always get a different answer and it sometimes stumps my guests and they don't know how to answer it because they haven't been asked it before. So the question is, are you afraid of dying? No. Why not? I have tremendous faith that there's much more waiting. For sure. And I like that. I've, I, I, as I said, I get different answers on this. Some people give the, some people give a religious approach, and I suppose that's what you're angling yours at, correct? And then others will say they are, they're scared in the fact they're not scared of what is coming after death, but they're scared that they won't achieve what they're set out to achieve before they do die. I, I, I certainly can see those fears, but. Um... I don't know that I'm, I have a whole lot of control over, over when that day arrives. Yeah. Um, what, what, I forget who the quote is attributed to, but something to the effect of, uh, you know, I'd like to know where I'm going to die so I can avoid that place. You know, mm. uh, I can't remember who said it, but, uh, um, you know, if, if we could control, if we knew where it was going to happen and, and we just never went there, I think we'd all do that. Right. But, uh, since we don't have a whole lot of control over it, I just try and focus on the things that I can control and I can impact and the rest will take care of itself. So if, some, if someone were to ask you, if someone were to tell you the exact date you were going to die, would you want to find out? 
would it matter? I don't Very know that it would matter. Yeah, and I don't know that it's that. I don't think it's that well predetermined, but uh, but that's yeah. probably a conversation for another day. Yeah, good. It's it's a very deep one as well, and it's it's not one that I wouldn't spend too much time on. So, well, you <laughs> asked me when we started, is there anything that I didn't want to talk about? I told you there's only three things: sex, politics, and religion. And so, we, you know, but yeah. let, let's not go into any of that. But um, uh, fantastic question, though, um, and uh, really makes you think. Yeah. And that's why I say that's why I like ending the episode on it. And that is all I have for you today. And I thank you for answering all of my questions. And I thank you for your time. So where can my guests follow up with you? Should they wish to ask you any questions, simply connect with you, see what you're doing? And as you mentioned, you have a book coming out. If you wanted to promote that, go for it. Yeah, so we've actually um, set up a page just for your listeners, Ethan, and they can... um, when they go there, we'll give them the URL in a second, but when they go there, uh, they can get a free copy of the new book and, um, and uh, they can get that there. And uh, we've also got a scorecard, which might be really useful for people who are, uh, you know, in business and trying to figure out what do they need to do next to move the business forward. We have a thing called the inevitable growth scorecard that they can get there. And the new book is called podcast prospecting. And so if you're intrigued by any of the things that we talked about today, um, related to how we use a podcast to generate clients, then the book really lays it all out. It's a, a quick read, about an hour. And, uh, and again, you can get it on that page. And the, the place to go is unstoppableceo.net slash CEO journal. Unstoppableceo.net slash CEO journal. Again, you can get the free podcast prospecting book and you can uh, – get the inevitable growth scorecard, which in about 10 minutes will give you a really clear picture of where you are right now and and the next thing to focus on to grow your business. Incredible. And I thank you for that as well, because I'm sure my listeners will love that. So I will leave that in the show notes below so you don't have to remember it. Just simply scroll down and click. But Steve, once again, thank you for your time and thank you for joining me on this episode of CEO Journals. So that's going to wrap up today's episode of the podcast and I can't thank you all enough for listening. I aim to interview some of the most incredible entrepreneurs every single week. So if you found any value in listening to today's episode, I'd seriously appreciate if you could smash that subscribe button and leave a five star rating and review. It only takes a couple of seconds and will help me secure some of the greatest names in business as guests on the show. If you want to reach out to me, head over to my Instagram at CEO Journals or send me a connection request on LinkedIn. I'd love to speak to as many of you as possible. Be sure to tune in next week where I'll be talking to another incredible guest where we will be discussing their journey and providing some great tips for all you listeners. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. And once again, thank you for tuning in to today's episode of CEO Journals.